Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Well, Father, uh, thank you so much for this this glorious day, Lord. I've looked forward to uh, talking about the issues that we're going to discuss today with justification, and um, just pray, God, you continue to give us further uh, clarity and, and understanding, Lord. Help us to see that we're looking at here the very the very essence of the gospel and um, that which gives us life and hope and, and a future. And uh, Father, we just pray for greater illumination in your word today, Father. We, we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, <clears throat> we, we've been looking at um, justification uh, from different angles. We've been talking about justification um, make sure this is on. Uh, with respect to Old Testament background, we've looked at the vocabulary there. We've looked at New Testament background. We've looked at the vocabulary dealing with that. But today we are going to deal strictly with the theology of justification. You might be asking yourself, well, isn't that what we've been talking about? <laughs> uh, yes, it, it has, of course. But now I want to just simply look at um, the implications, if you would. What are the implications of the doctrine of justification. And quickly, let me just uh, give you uh, one definition here of justification that I thought was really well said, and this is by Anthony Hokema. And Anthony Hokema's book, Saved by Grace, is a book that you do not want to be without if you want to understand the doctrine of salvation. Uh, I think Anthony Hokema writes with such clarity. Uh, they used to call him the master teacher. He is a professor at Calvin Theological Seminary uh, that took over for Burkoff, for Louis Burkoff, and uh, has since also uh, gone to be with the Lord. I don't remember when Anthony Hokema died, I think in the 80s. But um, this is what he said. He said that uh, justification is God's gracious and judicial act of God, whereby he declares believing sinners righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which is credited to them, forgives all their sins, adopts them as his children, and gives them the right to eternal life. Now, that's a really comprehensive uh, definition of the doctrine of justification because it hits all sorts of vital points. For example, you saw there uh, the reference to adoption. And uh, uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to be looking at the doctrine of adoption. Uh, so there you see that the doctrine of justification has a lot of implications for other areas of theology. Uh, forgiveness of sins, adoption, the right to eternal life, these types of things. So I want to look at the, the different implications of justification. And uh, we begin with the fact that justification presupposes the wrath of God or the reality of wrath that... Um, uh, when we say that someone is being justified or that having been justified, we have peace with God, for example, um, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Um, obviously, the fact that we have peace with God supposes that prior to justification, we did not have peace with God. And so what did we have prior to justification? What did we have? We had wrath. Uh, we had uh, alienation from God. In other words, we were in a hostile relationship to God. Uh, so just an example of this, somebody want to read for us Habakkuk 1.13, and while that person takes five minutes to find the book of Habakkuk, <laughs> somebody, can somebody can read John 3, verse 36. Somebody want to read that? Uh, Wally, you want to read that? Who's got Habakkuk? Uh, well, Wally's got Habakkuk too? Okay. Don't get greedy. 
No, no. You got Habakkuk? Okay. Uh, go ahead, Wally. Habakkuk? Yes, sir. Your eyes are too oh, pure right. to approve evil. Yes. If you cannot look on wickedness with favor, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Amen. So there, the idea of the fact that God's nature is antithetical to sin. It is not possible for God to look upon sin, which is a euphemism, right? For what? For the idea that God will not tolerate sin in his presence. God is so holy that he has to deal with sin. He can't simply live side by side with sin. So he has to remedy the issue of sin because for God, it is an issue of nature. It's not an issue of possibility. It's an issue of God's nature. God's nature precludes the idea that there should be any uh, uh, evil in his presence, that is, in his immediate glory. He cannot tolerate the presence of sin. Now, John 3, 36. John 3, 36. Um, I think we mixed, we mixed that up. We got that bad, right? You got it? Yeah. Okay, whoever, good. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains upon him. I like the King James. The wrath of God abides upon him. That's right. It remains up, up, upon him. It is, it, the wrath of God is like a weight. Remember uh, the story of, uh, uh, the, uh, of uh, uh, help me here, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, right, uh, walking around this world with a huge burden on his back. And he does not know how to rid himself of this burden. And he carries it all the day long. Everywhere he goes, he's weighed down by this heavy burden. And uh, the burden is sin, of course, and the reality of judgment, uh, sin and judgment. So here we're told that the wrath of God remains on a person, menao, which means it just stays on you. It is not going anywhere. There's nowhere you can go. There's no rock that you can hide under, right? Remember the people in the book of Revelation at the second coming? What will they be saying? Call to the rocks, the mountains, to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb of God that is coming. And, and, and if a Mount Everest were to land on them and somehow they survive, just go along with it, right? They survive under, under the weight of a Mount Everest. Even then, it will not protect them from the wrath of God. You know, when I was a little boy, my mom will tell you. How old is your son, Chris? He's five. When I was five years old, so I was his age, somewhere around his age, I remember playing this game, you know, playing this game with my mom, and I'd be under the covers, and I'd put all the pillows and the covers and everything on top of me that I could, and I would ask, I'd ask my mom, can God still see me down here? Right? <laughs> Really? And then I, oh, she said yes, and then I put more stuff on top of me because I didn't want God to see me because even at five years old, I knew I was a viper. <laughs> I knew the wicked things I was doing in preschool or whatever. Were we in school at that time? I don't know. I didn't come into school at the right way, and I didn't leave the right way. Anyway, it's a whole other story. But uh, regardless of what man does, he is at odds with God. So he is under the wrath of God. The curse of God remains on him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. The curse of God. And what does that refer to? It helps us to understand the nature of the wrath of God, right? Because the curse of God has to do with God's law. And because we are violators of the law of God, therefore the curse of God, the anathema of God, the wrath of God abides 
upon us. Now we can go on and on and on, but see Romans 5, 9. Romans 5, 9 uh, uh, says this because redemption, of course, includes the removal of the wrath of God. It says, Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see that? So when people talk about salvation today, and they talk about salvation in ways that make sense to them, right? How many people, I, if I had a nickel for every time a person tell me, told me what they think salvation means to them, right? My, my wife is my salvation, right? My family's my salvation, right? Salvation, I found salvation. Right? It's kind of a trendy thing, you know. I found salvation in, in the fact that I got off drugs or, you know. Have you seen those bumper stickers with the paw and it said, who, who saved who? Who rescued who? Who rescued who? Mm. So like, they, I don't know, adopted a dog or something, but... In reality, maybe the dog The dog adopted them. Right. Doggy (laughs) adoption of humans. My goodness. Yeah. But I like what theologians point out at this point, and that is that that salvation is defined by God. In other words, what we need is defined by God. And what God supplied to us is also defined by God. We don't get to define what we need. Right? Our greatest need. And that when you talk to people who aren't saved, a lot of times they want to tell you what they need. If I just had this, if I just had that, yeah, I'm just trying to work on some things. I'll be okay. You know, I'm trying to work on a relationship that I'm in and blah, blah, blah. And they think they can sort of create in their own mind the conditions of what amounts to salvation and which is no salvation at all. So Romans 5.9 is critical for you to explain to somebody that when you're talking about salvation, we're speaking about specifically man's greatest dilemma, which is to be forgiven of his sin and to be taken out from under the wrath of God through propitiation, right? So next, the judicial declaration. Now, this is important. We've looked at this all over the place, Old and New Testament. We saw the forensic aspect of justification. But here, important enough for us to point it out again because the fact that what justification implies is that we are once for all justified. That justification, remember we talked about this last week, is not a process. It's not a repetitive thing. And justification is based on the righteousness of Christ. That is to say, the judicial righteousness, the judicial declaration that we're talking about is the fact that God takes the righteousness of Christ and on the basis of that, he can declare us righteous, see? So it's not based on our righteousness at all. And then fourthly, it removes condemnation. That's what we're talking about with a judicial declaration. It is God removing, right, removing condemnation from us. Now, we covered that quite a bit, so I want to keep going because I've got 10 of these points. Let's see how far we get. Uh, Number three, Uh, justification is received by faith alone. Why is this important? Well, not only because that's what Scripture teaches, but because it eliminates works, right? Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is a very important um, chapter when you're dealing with uh, justification uh, because there we see the exclusion of works. Look at verse 16. It says, For this reason, it is by faith, that is, justification, salvation, 
It is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all of the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Amazing verse, you guys. Amazing verse. Go home, get a commentary, just focus on verse 16, do a whole, you know, devotion, whatever, uh, take notes, learn this verse inside and out, because it really wraps up the whole concept of redemption and justification in Christ by faith alone. Notice, it has to be by faith alone. Why? Because if it doesn't, if it's not by faith, then it will not be in harmony with grace. Because if it's not by faith, then it's not grace. Remember what he said earlier in the chapter. It would be in, 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 lines, in line with works and wages, verse 4, right? To the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, that is grace, but as what it is due. And so what he's saying is that if it were not by faith, then justification is what is due to man, right? What he has earned in and of himself. And it cannot be that. So it eliminates works. And then what do I, what do I mean by it produces works? So in a sense, it eliminates works, but not all works, because it produces other works namely the fruit of the spirit right ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23 it it produces fruit in our life so that we have evidence as james is concerned with in james chapter 2 verses 14 and following evidence that we indeed have been justified in the sight of god and justification is extranos that is does anybody know what extranos means no close Right? It is external. That is the extra. Right? And what is the nos? Knowledge. What's that? Knowledge. No, that's... that's sorry, I should have told you this is Latin, not Greek. <laughs> Greek is... You're getting uh, that from gnosis. Yeah. Right? But the Latin extra nos. Nos means us. So extra nos means external to us. Right? This is what the reformers were really key on for emphasizing the nature of justification and saying, look, justification arises outside of us. It is altogether an alien righteousness. Extranos is the way that Luther and others put it. Because it is not something, A, that we have residing in us. B, it is not something that we can produce, right? It is something... And it's not something that we can give to each other. It is something that has to come completely outside, external to us, alien to us, from an alien righteousness, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And how important is Jesus Christ to all of this? Well, let me say that justification is rooted in union with Christ. I don't know that you can study a sweeter doctrine um, uh, the operative word there being sweet. Jonathan Edwards loved the word sweet because he believed that upon regeneration, the believer is given a new spiritual sense, like a new taste bud that you never had before, capable of savoring that which is holy, which you never had the capacity to do prior to regeneration. So it is the sweetest. What I mean is it is, it is, so, it is so precious, this doctrine, that with union with Christ, and it's all over scripture. 
And remember, how do, you, how do you find the doctrine of union with Christ? You find it with prepositional phrases like this. With Christ, right? In Christ, uh, right? In Christ, right? Uh, you, you might find one with Christ. Again, it's just these prepositions. With Christ, in Christ, um, yeah, I mean, you find um, that phrase everywhere. You find it all over the place. Uh, and, and even when you don't find the actual prepositions, um, you still find the concept. So, for example, turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. This is a really crucial text because what we're saying here is <clears throat> exactly what Hokema goes on to say. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Let me read to you this quote again here by Hokema. He says, We are saved because we are in Christ, who has become for us righteousness. Not only does Christ bring us righteousness, he is our righteousness. We are righteous or justified only because we are in him. And so, somebody want to read that for us? 1 Corinthians 1.30. Anybody there? John, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, please. First Sorry, Chiquita. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, that him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Isn't it amazing? What a parallel concept there to what we just read, read out of Romans with the exclusion of works and the exclusion of boasting, right? Abraham has nothing to boast about, right? Because... Christ is our righteousness. And then maybe the operative uh, verse here is where, in verse 30, the, the, what's really important is uh, when it starts out by saying, this is by his doing. You see that? This is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. This is God's doing. It's his work. He's the one that puts us into Christ. Amazing. Simply amazing. And having been put into Christ, we... He, uh, he who, or says here, who became to us Christ, wisdom from God. That's amazing, isn't it? Wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. Wow, he gives us a new mind, new worldview, a newfound Christian ethic, a new epistemology, the way that we view life altogether. Um, the truth will set us free, according to Jesus, right? So Jesus is wisdom from God. Wisdom personified, the wisdom of God personified, just like you find in, uh, in the book of Proverbs. It says, and righteousness. So that's the, that's the word right there, right? Dekaiosune, righteousness from God. It is the righteousness that comes from God by faith. That is the righteousness that Jesus is for us. Yes, ma'am. Just talking about, like, you know, him giving us new eyes and, like, a new sense. Yeah. Crying, you know, crying, like loving them so deeply. And I hadn't had that before. 
you know, so just that, 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 that eight cents, if you want, yeah. or whatever, you know, he gives you that, that righteousness and yeah. desire to love one another. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Yeah. Amen. He works it into you, you know what I mean? I mean, when I got saved, I, I had a hard time loving Christians. You know what I mean? I couldn't understand. I thought guys in the church were gay. I, I did. Like, some guy came up to me and gave me a hug. I was like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, that's what people do around here? They hug each other? You know what I mean? I just didn't understand. I was like, you know. And then I came to understand, you know, that's in love, brother. <laughs> you know? Christian love, agape. Um, matter of fact, the early Christians by the Romans were also accused of being uh, a homosexual and, and, and just licentious because of this emphasis on agape, agape, agape. And they thought the Romans, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're immoral. They're engaged in all kinds of sexual uh, perversion, of course, because look at all this talk about love and loving one another and blah, blah, blah. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a well-known fact. Justification is also based on substitution, substitution. Isaiah uh, 53, verse 6, says that Jesus suffered for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says Jesus bore sin for us. Uh, Matthew 20, 28 says that Jesus is a ransom for us. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. So the word there, for, right, uh, is not the... There's two, there's two words here. Uh, one in the Greek, sir, you can have this translation. He became these things for us. But in the Greek, it could be either, um, boy, how do I even write this? Uh, it could be a uh, gar, okay, which is, that's, that's kind of what, what you would be looking at. Or it could be uh, huper. Yeah, that's right. Cooper. This is kind of an English transliteration. But of the Hebrew, or excuse me, of the Greek, uh, preposition huper, which means on behalf of. So you would really, I guess, pronounce it like that. Huper. But my writing's horrible. I should have been a doctor. <laughs> but this preposition literally means instead of. In place of. See that? On our behalf. For our sake. That is what who pair means. That Jesus was put on the cross who pair. For us. For in our place. Instead of us. This is total substitution. Second um, Corinthians chapter 5. Probably one of the clearest um, passages that deal with substitution, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Um, I, have a, I have a whole chapter on this. I'm, I'm tr well, my wife's going to laugh at me in a minute, but I'm trying to publish a, uh, another book here uh, and, and dealing with the gospel, and I have a whole chapter on substitution, that he was crucified on our behalf. And it's just amazing the language in Scripture everywhere about Jesus being our substitute, literally taking our place um, it's just remarkable. You guys there? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And if you have any questions, feel free. I know I'm in a rush, but I'm, I'm trying not to. But uh, feel free to ask any questions that you may have. Uh, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that 
uh, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this, what's known as the, the, the great exchange, right? The great exchange. Our sin is put to his account. His righteousness is put to our account. That is the great exchange. This double imputation back and forth. Our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. Couldn't be any clear. And uh, any questions on, on substitution? Um, can I ask you yeah. on the faith alone, could you give a summary um, response to James chapter 2, uh, the justification? <laughs> he started explaining to me one day, and it was really good. The, uh, he said the, the operative word at the beginning of James 2, and it says, can that faith, oh, yeah. like if someone comes to you and says, I, I have faith with that word, can that faith. So it's like, can that faith. The whole chapter itself is referring to um, a specific person coming and asking about a, a certain type of like, yes. almost like carnal faith where they just have faith and then do whatever. Is that right. kind of the summary of yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think James is saying, look, what good does it do if a person professes faith in Christ, right? Can that faith, and then the, the Greek word that, that, uh, what is it, a demonstrative pronoun, that, that word right there is specifying a certain kind of faith. What kind of faith? Well, theologians call it stated faith. A, a faith that is simply stated is no faith at all, Right? And so, I mean, it's complicated because it uses the Greek words, you know, to justify righteousness. It uses these words. And so we get all, you know, we, we go into Romans and we hear all this justification by faith alone, right? And then we get to uh, James and we hear this language of, was he not justified by works? <laughs> See? So there what it's saying is justification mainly saying was demonstrated by works. It is not the justification in the strict forensic sense of the word, before God took place by works, right? So it was evidenced by works, so not accomplished by works. So the evidence to anybody else looking at us can see our justification by our by works. Our that's right. It's not what justifies us to God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I mean, because think about it. And when someone says they're saved, I get people in our church that come in our church all the time. They say they're saved, right? And But yet, when you start getting to know them a little bit and you start understanding where they're at spiritually, you come to find out they're probably not saved. Not everybody, but it happens all the time, right? And, you know, what we're looking for, and that's why church membership is so important, right? Where we can actually sit down, we can evaluate evidence of conversion, a reliable testimony, uh, evidence of the grace of God working in your life, a pattern of obedience, a break with sin. You know, all of these things are evidence of your justification. So in that sense, we can say that person is justified by works, not simply by saying that he has faith. Anybody can say that, right? He goes on to conclude there, right? Even the demons believe and tremble. So just because you say that you have faith uh, is not enough. It's not enough. Possessing faith is enough, but saying that you possess faith is not enough. Your faithful, saving faith will produce works. Correct. Not that works produce saving faith. Well, it's just like we right. read earlier in the morning <clears throat> on John yeah. 3.36. Yeah. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, and then it continues, but he who does not obey 
Perfect. Excellent. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because it doesn't go on to say he who does not profess. No, he who does not obey. Right? Obedience is, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. If you claim to have had an encounter with God where God forgave you of your sin, justified you by faith, and then you have no works to evidence that, you know what I mean? Then you're living in contradiction to what you claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How? That's it. Okay. <laughs> like I was wondering what that connection. Well, because connection. you know, if you're, because if you're not obedient, uh-huh. is, and you're you're in what rebellion, which is what like the sin of witchcraft. Sure. God's eyes rebellion to God's word is like sorcery, because you're taking a you're taking your yeah you're taking a stand directly against God when you disobey. Um, Okay, so next, let's talk about imputation. Remember, we talked about the three directions of imputation. Do you remember that? So there's three ways that imputation works in the Bible. You have, first and foremost, the imputation of Adam's sin to us. And then you have the imputation of our sin to Christ. And then thirdly, you have the imputation of Christ's righteousness back to us. See? So three directions in imputation. And imputation is also a forensic thing. In other words, it speaks of a reckoning, a legal reckoning. It goes back to the legal declaration that is made upon our justification, upon faith. God justifies us, legally declares us righteous. And uh, this word here, to impute, right, is the word that just simply means to reckon or to credit. And so for that, we have to go back to Romans chapter 4, which is such a pillar text, just to see this. But I want you to see how this works. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, we see that we see that righteousness is imputed to us apart from works. That's very clear, right? It says here, David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Apo which means away from, apart from, works. And then in verses 6 through 8, imputation, you can see that imputation um, is connected to who? Verse 7 and 8, who is imputation spoken about? Blessed are those, right, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the word, into account, to credit it to him, to impute it to him. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Old Testament people. The man that he's referring to there is that man that was living under the old dispensation, the old uh, uh, covenant, and... The reason why this is important, you might be saying, where, where is he going with this? <laughs> My PowerPoint. Imputation is inseparable from justification, and it shows the organic nature of salvation for the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. What I'm trying to stress here is that God saves both Old and New Testament people on the same basis, on the basis of imputed righteousness. 
on the basis of justification by faith alone. Abraham was given the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, he was? Where is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Where is Jesus Christ in the narrative of Abraham? Where does it say in Genesis that Abraham was given the imputed righteousness of Christ? Yeah, why would you say you're looking at it right here in Romans, right? I mean, right here, we're talking about the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and that that is exactly what happened to Abraham. And that happened to every man to whom God did not impute his sin, but rather imputed the righteousness of God to him. So theologians like to talk about it like this, that the righteousness of Jesus is retroactively applied to Old Testament believers, meaning it is applied to them before it even happened. And, and we shouldn't have a problem with that, right? Because, because we have the same dynamic, except in the opposite direction, right? The righteousness of Jesus is applied to us in the future, right? Well, the righteousness of Christ is applied to them in the past. That's the way that it works. They were looking, they were, their, how did their faith work? Exactly like ours, except in the opposite direction. They were looking for the Messiah, putting their faith in the future redemptive work of Christ. We put our faith in the, the, the Messiah that came and, and ascended. Our faith looks back upon Christ and what he did. Right? So it's all Christ. Right? He is the center of it all. Any questions? Yes, sir. That kind of correlation, how does that follow with the, uh, the flood? Noah's faith was in the ark to come, and yet when the ark came, you know, it saved him and his family. Yeah. It seems, it seems like a decent correlation. Well, sure, especially because you're told in Peter, right, that the, 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 the flood and Noah's ark is actually a type of Christ. Right? That we have to put faith in him. We have to take refuge in God's ark. Even today, are you in the ark of God, which is Christ, not a wooden boat? Right? So we would say, yes, same thing. Noah had faith in the Redeemer that was spoken about. I can, I, you can even see that. Watch, turn with me to Genesis. <clears throat> I better find it, too. There, there is one verse in Genesis that is really remarkable. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Just God, you know, the Word of God gives you these, these little triggers, these little, these little indications, right? Just like uh, Job. When he said, I will, I will, you know, my Redeemer lives, right? And I will stand with him on that day, right? Stand with my Redeemer? That's amazing. Uh, Moses, the angel standing in the midst of the bush was speaking to him. And he called him Yahweh, right? So these little, tr these little, foreshadows, these little type shadows, 
prefigures of Christ. Same thing right here. Uh, verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of the son. Now watch this. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So what I'm saying to you is that as early on as this, they were looking for an individual who could provide rest. What kind of rest are we talking about? What kind of rest? Just uh, taking a break from work, right? Is he saying this person is going to give us all a holiday? Oh, no, 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 no. Why, why do you know that? For sure? Why do you know that? It's not just nine to five rest, rest from your job at work, right? It's deeper than that because he uses the word here, curse, which tells us that the author here is already thinking about the curse in Genesis 3, which means that the authors, or, or, or definitely the author, Moses, but the people at this time, this primeval period of time, already had this typological faith in the coming seed who will give them redemptive rest from the curse that ensued at the fall. Remarkable. And um, that is, um, that's really remarkable that early on in the Bible that statements like that are made. It's the same thing that you find uh, in Genesis chapter 4. Look very quickly here with me. Um, Genesis chapter 4. <sighs> Eve understood the promise of the individual that would give rest and reverse the curse because it says Eve, uh, the man, literally Adam, so Adam had relations with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, watch this, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Why is that such a big deal? Right? And, and he, listen to this, guys. In the Hebrew, some scholars even go so far as to say that the literal Hebrew rendition here is that, um, is that the Hebrew is saying that Eve, Eve said, I have gotten a child, the Lord. Which I think is a bit overheated theology this early on, but the fact that she exclaimed, right, that she had gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, to me signifies that she thought that Cain was the promised seed and that through him, the curse would be reversed. Yes, sir? It seemed like Lamech was thinking the same thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Lamech was thinking the same thing, that the promised seed had, had arrived through Noah, which of course we know scripturally that Noah, like Jonathan pointed out, according to, what is it? I think it's, is it First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, I think, um, where Noah is a type of Christ. So all along, you have these, these um, Adamic figures, right? Adam is a, excuse me, Noah is like a new Adam. How do we know that? Look at the covenant that, that God made with him. After he saved them, after the waters resided and the people exited the boat, what did God do with him? 
Just like Adam, he established a covenant with him. And just like Adam, he promised to bless him and to multiply him, just like he did with Adam, which is consequently exactly what he did with who else? Abraham. Bless you. Multiply you. Right? It's amazing how it all ties. Very remarkable, but that's exactly kind of what I'm preaching. I don't want to give my preaching away. Real quick. I'll save some of it. Okay. Um, also, number seven, uh, justification involves the harmony of God's sense of justice and mercy. See, this is important, guys. This is important because we are asking the question of how does God justify and uphold his mercy and uphold his justice? We can't have one without the other, right? We can't have God like Allah under the Muslim worldview that just forgives you just because. That's what it says. Allah can just forgive a person on the last day, and he's so capricious, however, Allah, that for whatever reason, <laughs> this is terrifying, right? If, if Allah wants, he can take a person out of heaven, out of paradise, and thrust him into hell. That's what the Hadiths teach. God could change his mind upon you in heaven. Could there be anything more dreadful than that? That's how capricious Allah is. Just at a whim's notice, it just, you know, I've had enough of you, you've been enjoying too much paradise, depending you know. Depending on his mood. Depending on his mood, you know, off to hell with you. What? I mean, just, what? No wonder Muslims have no peace with God. Can you imagine? But no, we have to have a God who, who has a sense of justice and mercy simultaneously. That's what needs to happen, and that's exactly what happens at the cross. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss, right? The justice of God fully satisfied and the mercy of God fully displayed. Amazing. Any questions about that? With Noah? I think so. But then I guess it goes on, right? It goes on. I think it's verse 8. Um, Is it verse 8? See, this is what's wrong with the rise of the machines. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Machines, man, they let you down. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's move on. We have a couple of very, very important things to get to before we finish here. We have about 15 minutes. So, number eight, it consists both of negative and positive aspects. Uh, negatively, we're talking about the forgiveness of sins, the removal of our sins in a negative sense. Positively, we're talking about and what it issues forth in, which is adoption and the right to eternal life. You have the right to eternal life. Now, we're going to cover adoption uh, in much more depth, Lord willing, next week. So I won't stay there very long. But also, you guys got that? Any questions on that? Um, so negatively, it, it, it takes away sin. Forgiveness it results in forgiveness of sin. Positively, it, it results in adoption and the right to eternal life. And now, number nine. 
it, justification also has implications, massive implications, for what is known as protology and eschatology. You know what eschatology is, right? Huh? Why is it called end times? Why is it called, what, what is eschatology? The science of the end times. The okay, why is it called end times? means last, right? And so what do I mean when I say protology? First, prior beginning, prior times. Right, so it comes from the Greek word protos, which means first, right? So we're talking about first things, last things. So in other words, the doctrine of justification answers how or answers the imputation of Adam's sin and how that sin that was in the garden, in Adam, through Adam, through the initial representative head of humanity, how that sin is going to be dealt with. And that is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 18, which is consequently known as really one of the hardest passages in scripture to exegete, and it, it is. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult passage to exegete, but one thing we know for certain is that the imputation of Jesus' righteousness to us is the answer to the imputation of Adam's sin to us. Through the disobedience of one man came death to all, right? Might as well go there before I, before I mess it up. Chapter five. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Therefore, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Um, okay. Verse 18, so then as, though, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. When it says justification of life, that literally means justification that leads to life to all men. See that? So this is what justification deals with. Justification... Uh, is, is the answer for protology of Adam's sin, the protology of Adam's sin. It's amazing to me how everything has to do in the Bible, believe it or not, this is true, everything in the Bible has to do with either protology or eschatology. Right? And as a matter of fact, some would argue that the protology of Scripture is primarily eschatological. That the opening chapters of the Bible, the, the, uh, the point of it, the subject of it, is eschatology. How God will redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ. It is setting a creation in front of us, right, that we now know was a mere type or a mere foreshadow of the new creation that is to come, right? 
And we've talked about all these endemic themes. They're, they're incredible. They're, they're magnificent, wonderful. I mean, the idea, be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve, right? That language of fruitful multiply, that gets picked up throughout the whole Old Testament. And eventually, by the time it gets to the prophets, that is the language of spiritual descendants. Be fruitful and multiply does not mean have a big family. Oh, it certainly has implications for that. But what I'm saying is that the deeper issue in Scripture is that God is going to produce a spiritual humanity through Christ. And that's what that is all going towards. It's amazing. It's actually part of my sermon as well. It's just crazy. Isn't it amazing how the Lord does that? It is to me. It is to me because I'm sitting there studying for Sunday school and then I shift over to my sermon. I'm like, this is what I just got done studying. And here I am. Man, I'm going to sound redundant. Oh, well. Eschatology is also important to justification because it answers the verdict of the day of judgment in the present. Isn't that amazing? Upon justification, what we're saying is that on the last day, you and I will be righteous. You and I will be righteous. And uh, this is very, very important for your view of justification because there are some really, really bad views on justification out there. One of them is a new perspective. (laughs) And it's called the new perspective. I almost didn't even want to bring it up. The new perspective on Paul is a theology that originated, boy, we don't have time for this. Um, It's a theology that originated with a man by the name of E.P. Sanders. It was later taken by two men on the evangelical level, one of them by the names of James Dunn, And the other one, the most important one, is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright. Thomas Wright. What these gentlemen are trying to suggest to us is that the Reformation got the doctrine of justification wrong. And that it does not have to do with forensic righteousness. It does not have to do with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It has to do with covenant membership. Everybody's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I'm still, huh? Because I've read Wright, I've read Dunn, I've read Sanders, and I've read the critics. Uh, Probably one of the best books you can read on the subject is a a book by a gentleman by the name of Guy Prentice Waters who was actually a student under uh, N.T. Wright and refutes this new perspective on on the doctrine of justification. And what they're saying basically is that justification does not have to do with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Justification has to do with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. It speaks of entrance into the community of God's people. It does not speak of a legal tribunal scenario before the presence of God and the mind of God in heaven. It has to do with how a person comes into the church, comes into the covenant community of God's people. But this is the clincher that makes this new perspective actually very old, is that they say that this entrance into the covenant has to be maintained. 
So you have to maintain your righteousness. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Remember what the canons of uh, uh, the canons of Trent said that I read, right? If anybody denies that justification is not a process and is not increased over time, let him be anathema, mm-hmm. right? What these folks are saying is that justification is a process. That you, by your own faith and your own moral efforts, your own merit, you have to maintain your covenant status by remaining faithful to the gospel and all these other things. So that justification is not a once-for-all legal declaration that will resound even in the courtroom of eternity in the, on the last day of judgment, right? But what they're saying is that this righteousness is actually an ongoing process and that at the end of the day, the way that God judges you is on the basis of the total life lived. That's actually one of their favorite fa- phrases, the total life lived. Well, um, obviously, we disagree with that. We disagree with that because we believe that justification is a once-for-all act of God where he removes the guilt of sin, but sanctification is removing the pollution of sin, um, the pollution of sin. So, very important. Justification is external. Sanctification is internal. Justification is a once-for-all, definitive, unrepeatable event, while sanctification is an ongoing process. So what the new perspective is really talking about is relegated to the realm of sanctification. The new perspective is committing the old heresies of Rome. And many, many have pointed this out. It's that simple. Let me leave you on an encouraging note. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? See, once God's verdict of justification has been rendered, it's incontrovertible. There's nothing that can undo it. If we don't have this Christian hope, if what we have is the righteousness is based on the whole life lived, then we got a whole lot of living to do in order to hopefully have enough righteousness on that day. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Time doesn't even allow to comment on that verse. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know that uh, even four weeks on this subject, we're still just scratching the surface, and that is the depth and the profundity of Christian theology. Lord, that we can literally spend years on this subject and still come to new aspects, new facets, new light to understand the truth of justification. So, Lord, bless us as, as uh, students of your word. Bless our church, our service, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.